It's a program of Jewish information, inspiration, motivation, and transformation. Here on the Gabrielle Sanders Show. Welcome again to the Gabrielle Sanders Show, your audio magazine bringing you people, organizations, and opportunities for making a difference. We're serving up food for the soul that translates into meaningful action, improving the quality of your life, and thereby improving our world. We are, unapologetically, a Torah-centric program, drawing our worldview and values from ancient Jewish wisdom and applying it to contemporary issues and challenges. In today's program, Dr. Lisa Aiken continues her commentary on improving our communication skills, particularly on the home front. Rabbi Jonathan Rieti offers us a brief but substantive look into the science of love. And speaking of love, Rabbi Mordechai Becher unpacks the deeper meaning of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. I'll have a few closing comments of my own to share, but let's get underway with the fastest-moving half-hour of Jewish programming legally allowable, coming to you on The Gabrielle Sanders Show. You're tuned to The Gabrielle Sanders Show, broadcasting on WNEW 102.7 FM HD3 New York and around the world on TalklineNetwork.com. This is David Eskenazi from the Aliyah Network. If you're thinking Aliyah, I invite you to join our dynamic and supportive WhatsApp group. Contact Gabriel for details. Send an email to gabrielradio at gmail.com. King Solomon authored three books in Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. They are the Song of Solomon, Kohelet, or Ecclesiastes, and Mishle, the Book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 18.21, the wise king observed that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Mavit v'chaim b'yad halashon. So with that in mind, here's psychologist and author Dr. Lisa Aiken to explain the difference between destructive and constructive criticism. Dr. Aiken. The Torah gives us many tools in how to deal with relationships. Part of these tools involve our taking responsibility for our reactions to other people. We assume in Judaism that it is not objective events that get us upset. It's our interpretation of most events that lead to the emotional reactions that we have. Many of these reactions are counterproductive. They demean us, they hurt our relationships, and they damage the way that other people feel about themselves. Many times people feel angry because someone hurts their feelings. At the moment they feel angry, they are often torn between a desire to get even and take revenge and a desire to feel loved and be understood. Apologizing usually takes away our desire for revenge by conveying understanding and taking away the sting. But if we choose to retaliate instead, the other person will usually counterattack or withdraw, and we won't get the love and understanding that we wanted all along. The Torah prohibits us from taking revenge. Revenge destroys our relationships and also destroys our character. We should train ourselves to put our anger aside and calmly explain how we feel when someone hurts us. Stressing our hurt instead of our anger usually gets us a sympathetic response, while getting angry usually raises someone else's defenses. By thinking before we speak and stressing how we feel hurt instead of angry, we can communicate our hurt in a way that another person is most likely to validate our feelings and empathize with us. If we stress our anger instead, the other person is likely to protect him or herself by getting defensive, or by tuning us out. People who hurt us are more empathic if we make them feel guilty than if we vent our anger at them. When we yell at or show anger to another person, that other person is likely to feel threatened, to feel defensive, and not acknowledge our feelings. If instead we emphasize our disappointment, hurt, 
and our yearning for closeness, we are most likely to get comfort and sympathy. People don't often realize that there are two parts of communication. Communication means that there are two people involved. One must be a listener, and one must be the person sending a message. Besides listening well, we have to send messages effectively. This involves tempering what we say by considering who is listening. The Talmud gives many examples of how our sages did this. For example, King Ptolemy wanted a personal library in Alexandria with a Greek translation of every book that existed. He imprisoned 72 Jewish sages in as many separate rooms and ordered them, on pain of death, to translate the Torah from its original Hebrew into Greek. The sages reluctantly complied, but didn't translate the Torah literally. They thought that the idolatrous Greeks would misinterpret the Torah's real meaning to fit with their pagan beliefs. So each sage deliberately mistranslated certain passages. The result was that the Greeks understood the Torah's intent, not always its literal meaning. Even God distorted the truth in order to preserve marital harmony between the patriarch Abraham and his wife Sarah. God sent a message to tell Abraham that he and his wife would have a child in a year's time, when Abraham would be a hundred years old and Sarah would be a mere ninety. When she heard this, she exclaimed, After I have become old, shall I have the pleasure of having children, considering how old my husband is? God later asked Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Will I really give birth, given that I am old? The Almighty deliberately omitted telling Abraham that his wife had said that her husband was old. Instead, he told Abraham that she had stated that she was old, in order to keep peace between them. These are but two examples of how good communication takes into account who is listening to us and what that person needs to hear. We have these similar situations every day. Someone shows you something they bought and asks you how it looks on them or what you think about it. You think it looks horrendous, but it was bought at a final sale and can't be returned. Instead of saying what you really think, you tell the person what they need to hear. Someone makes a meal for you and asks you how you like it. Tar would taste better. You, of course, say, Thank you so much for a wonderful meal. I really appreciate how hard you worked to please me. Just make sure that you go out to eat or make the meal yourself the next time. One of the big challenges in relationships is when we feel we need to criticize someone. We don't always do it in the best way possible. Very often when we are upset, we automatically tune into how we feel more than tuning into how someone else feels. But we need to be especially sensitive at such times or we will tear down the other person in our anger and upset. Following a few rules about criticism, some of which were stated by our sages almost a thousand years ago in the books of Nachmanides, can be very important. For example, we should never criticize someone when we are very angry. People who are angry often criticize or share feelings by attacking the object of their anger. When they do this, the medium is the message. People only hear the anger that is thrown at them, not the words. This makes the listener think, this person is my enemy. I better protect myself by retaliating, defending myself, or running away. We get sympathy by expressing how hurt and vulnerable we feel, not by sending missiles of anger. Someone who cares about us will feel bad and will want to help us if we say that we are hurting, but they will get defensive if we get angry at him or her. We should also preface and follow any criticism with a compliment. We encourage people to hear criticism and motivate them to change by first making them feel secure and loved, appreciated and admired. 
For example, we might preface our criticism of a spouse by saying, I love you very much and I appreciate how good you are to me, but I feel very upset about such and such. If you would do this and that, you will make me very happy. Thanks for hearing me out. You're wonderful. When we have to compliment before criticizing, it reminds us of the other person's good qualities and helps us to stop thinking that he or she is all bad. We then criticize more gently, which helps the other person to be more receptive instead of feeling attacked. When we criticize, we should also be constructive and brief, criticize a specific behavior, and say how we want it changed. We should never criticize someone's traits or personality, nor be global and vague. For example, saying, you're stupid, bossy, obnoxious, controlling, inconsiderate, and the like, doesn't get us anywhere. Instead, specify behaviors that you don't like and say what you'd prefer. For example, you can say, Would you please wash your dishes and clean up the kitchen after you cook or eat? Instead of saying, You're such a slob. Rather than calling your wife a nag, it's better to say, I appreciate your conscientiousness because it makes our home run so well. On the other hand, it upsets me when you tell me what to do and when. Asking me once to do something is enough of a reminder. This is Rabbi Pesach Krohn, and you're listening to my dear friend and yours, Gavriel. We have been benefiting from the wisdom of Rabbi Jonathan Rieti, a well-known and much-beloved speaker, as he's explained to us the science of happiness, the science of anger, and today, the science of love. It's energizing to feature him on our audio magazine, so Rabbi Rieti, over to you. Thank you, Gavriel, and welcome to The Science of Love. There's probably no other character trait that is as powerful. Actually, in the words of our sages, love, love forces everything out of its way. I think in English, the equivalent is love conquers all. Nothing can stand up to love, whether it's love of a person, a child, one spouse, or an ideal. People are even willing to destroy their own lives for the sake of the love of their ideal. Love is a very potent character trait, which we really have to understand. Here's where I really want to begin. How can God command me to love? You know, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, how can you command me to love another person, especially if I don't particularly like that person? Right now, I actually hate that person. I've got resentment and bitter feelings towards what they've said or done to me, and yet I'm being commanded to love them. And if we look at the words carefully, they don't really help lend clarity to the subject, because when it says love your neighbor as yourself, well, what happens if I hate myself? How much do I have to love you? And what happens if I'm suicidal? How much do I love you now? So we have a problem here. What does God mean when he says, I command you to love? Number two, we have another problem. He commands me to love him. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm commanded to love God. Well, (laughs) I don't always feel like loving God. If someone just came out of the Holocaust, if someone just lost a loved one, how am I supposed to love God in this grief, in this loss? If it's really God who's behind all this, how do I love him? How can you just command me? Is love really an emotion that I'm being commanded to press this button called love and it just turns on? Or is love a science and not an emotion at all? Love is a choice, a science in the sense that it's a formula, that when I play out that formula, it equals the result we call love. So let's explore this a little deeper. I think we're living in a generation where the word love has become so used it's become abused. I'll never forget about 16 years old, walking into school late one morning, Ringo Starr, who's 
young son Zach was quite famous today, actually. He's in and out of rehabs and prisons across America. But at that time, Zach was four years old, and Ringo Starr was dragging his feet out of his bright green Rolls Royce, ruined the Rolls Royce. And I go up to Ringo, he was about four inches shorter on me, and he was wearing high heels and, and platforms. It was in vogue in those days, in the 60s. I go up to Ringo, I say, Ringo, can I have your autograph? And he said two words to me. The second word was off, and the first word contained four letters, and it wasn't love. And he really got me thinking. I mean, here's a guy going, love is all you need, yeah, 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 yeah. You don't know the first thing of decency. Tell me that your career is in your wrist, and that your therapist and your career manager told you you can't keep writing these signatures and autographs. I'll understand. But how did just come off just, you know, I have to say in his defense that recently he um, went out public apologizing to tens of thousands of fans in the past 40 years for his verbal abuse. And what was his excuse? He was depressed because he was on drugs or he was on controlled drugs because he was depressed. You know what? Where are we supposed to go for clarity on the word love where it's been so popularized that we use the word love for my dog? And for my mother, and hopefully it's not the same love. No, that's arguable. No, uh, so we use love in so many different contexts. Food, sports, culture, art, parents, children, spouse, pets. That is it possible that instead of it being an endearing word, it starts to lose its preciousness? So let's try to understand, what does God mean by commanding me to love other people? Well, if he says, I'm commanded to love them like I love myself, what am I really first being told to do? I have to love me. What does it mean to love, though? We need a definition. So let's explore this a little deeper and come out with a working definition. What is it that I mean when I say, I love your clothes? That's image. I love your car. When people love us for our money, our status, our social status, that's not love that's intrinsic. That's not internal love. That's external. It's still a love, but it's not really real. Let's go a little bit deeper. When someone says, I love you for your kind-heartedness, ooh, we're getting a little bit closer. That's something that's internal. So when a person identifies something that's external about me, my fame, I'm a famous actor or film star or rock and roll star or a sports star, they're identifying a talent that I have exhibited externally, but they haven't really got in touch with me. That perhaps helps explain why so many actors and actresses are so unhappy and in and out of love because they don't really know who they really are. Because who do you and I relate to when we see Tom Cruise in a restaurant? How would we respond to the guy say, oh, look, there's Tom Cruise. Or, oh, my gosh, that's Tom Cruise. I can't believe I'm seeing it in real life. Oh, my gosh, you do you really do your own stunts? You're amazing. I saw Mission Impossible. You're great. You know, how do we relate to these people? As real people or the person they are on screen? In fact, this is the only profession in world history. Actors and actresses is the only profession in world history where they get so many accolades and recognition for who they are. Not! They are not real people. And it's no wonder they're so confused the rest of the time. Real love is not about my talent outwardly. It's not about my body shape. It's not even about my physical or financial status. My real love is when I identify internal qualities and virtues that are intrinsic to your character. Let's simplify this even more. Love is acknowledgement of virtue. Love is acknowledgement of qualities that are intrinsic to you. It's true that I love your jeans or your wardrobe or your shape or your financial status. You can say that's a love because I'm recognizing a virtue. But if I ask myself, what virtues do I need in any love relationship in order for this relationship to be a long-standing loving relationship? We need the deeper internal virtues that are 
intrinsic to real relationships. So when we talk of generosity, kindness, admitting my mistakes, forgiveness, happiness, appreciation, gratitude, respect, sensitivity, empathy. Oh my gosh, these are real measures of a human being. That when we notice these qualities in another person and verbalize them to them, that's when that person will feel loved by us on a much deeper level. Now we understand what God means. When he says, I command you to love others, he's really saying, I'm commanding you to look for the virtues that are already there that will cause you to love them. Look for the reasons that will cause you to love this person, spouse, child. And if I don't find any, the problem isn't in the object, the child. The problem is in me, that I haven't learned how to search for gold because it's already there. Because God says, like you love yourself. Just like I will find virtue in myself, and if I don't, I have to find those virtues. I'm being commanded to look for the reasons that will cause me to love me. Because that's preparation and it will help me train in finding the reasons that will cause me to love you. When God says he wants us to love him, he means look for the reasons that will cause me to love him. Look for the virtues, the blessings that he does on a daily basis. When was the last time you got an oxygen bill? When was the last time you got a gravity bill? Oh my gosh! You know what? It's bad enough real estate taxes, but imagine you had to pay for oxygen and rainfall. God's blessings are all around us all the time. And God commands me to notice the reasons that will cause me to acknowledge his goodness, his kindness, his blessings in my life that will equal what we call love. Love is acknowledgement of virtue in ourselves, in others. And if I want to increase that love, the way to do it is increase my exploration in breadth and depth of the good that's already in myself and those closest to me. This is Jonathan Rietti wishing you health, wealth, wisdom, and happiness. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's one of the best known of biblical quotations, but it's also perhaps one of the least understood, practically speaking. So we asked another popular and well-known speaker, with a cool accent, of course, to give us some enlightenment. Here to fill in the blanks in our understanding is Rabbi Mordechai Becher. I'd like to address the question of what is meant by a very famous statement in the Talmud in which a Roman, a non-Jew, comes to the great sage Hillel, he first comes to Shammai and says, I'd like to convert on condition that you teach me Judaism while standing on one foot. Now, that's a little obnoxious, frankly. You know, if someone came to me, I'd chuck him out as well, which is exactly what Shammai did. You want to convert to Judaism, don't make conditions. Just do what, what we say. You're becoming part of Judaism. We don't have to conform to you. You have to conform to us. And so therefore, Shammai quite correctly threw him out on his head. Not literally, but threw him out. However, this man came to Hillel, Shammai's colleague, good friend, although they argued often, and he said to Hillel the same thing, teach me Judaism while standing on one foot. And Hillel said, no worries, mate. I don't know if he said that, but if he was Australian, he would have said, no worries, mate. As it was, Hillel said, fine. And Hillel said to him, very, very famous statement, he said, that which is hateful unto you, do not do unto your friend. The rest is commentary, go and learn. In Aramaic, that which is hateful unto you, do not do unto your friend. And this is actually parallel to another famous statement by Rabbi Akiva, 
who says this is a klal gadol b'torah, a great rule of the Torah. In other words, one of the central and greatest rules of the Torah is the verse in Leviticus 19, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Indeed, it's a beautiful verse. And indeed, it seems to parallel Hillel's statement. Hillel says that that's the center. All of Judaism is a commentary on that which is hateful unto you. Don't do unto your friend. And Rabbi Akiva says that one of the great rules of the Torah is love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, Love your neighbor as yourself, I am God. Granted, it's an important thing, no question. And granted, it's a great rule of the Torah, no question about that. But how exactly is the entire, all of Judaism, a commentary on that which is hateful unto you, don't do unto your friend? I mean, okay, the Judaism says, the Torah says, don't eat lobster. Now, how is that a commentary on that which is hateful unto you, don't do unto your friend, unless your friend is a lobster? It doesn't really fit very well. How is fasting on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a fulfillment of that which is hateful unto you, don't do unto your friend? And so on and so forth. There's so many laws of the Torah, so many aspects of Judaism. How are they all a commentary on this idea? There's a Mishnah. It's a well-known Mishnah in the first chapter, second Mishnah of Ethics of the Fathers in which the sages tell us that the world stands on three things. The study of Torah, the prayers to God, worship of God, and kindness to others. In Hebrew, Torah, Avodah, Gemilut Chasadim. Study of Torah, service of God, kindness to others. The Maharal, and I'm loosely interpreting the Maharal, but I think, I think he might agree with me. Anyway, the, the, I hope he would. Anyway, but the Maharal says the following. He says that really each one of these is relationships. It's awareness and maintenance and care for a certain area of relationship. The study of Torah is the relationship to one's own soul, to one's own sanctity, to one's own soul, and to one's essence. So when we study Torah, we're really studying the essence of ourselves and getting in contact with the spiritual essence of the human being, the neshama or the soul. Avodah is relationship with God. It is the idea of having a relationship with the Creator, primarily through our conversation with Him, through prayer. That's a very, very central pillar of Judaism, the relationship with God. And third, gemilut chasadim, kindness to others. That is to say, the development of our relationship with other people. So really, what the Maharal says is that the human was created to develop these three areas, these three relationships. To develop a relationship with his own soul, to be aware of the soul, the needs of the soul, the desires of the soul, the requirements of the soul, the potentials of the soul. That is accomplished through the study of Torah. The second is to develop a relationship with God, with the Creator, primarily through prayer, but there's many ways in which we do that. And the third is a relationship with other people. So we could actually loosely divide the Torah's commandments into three sections. Mitzvot ben Adam la'atzmo, the commandments between a person and themselves. Mitzvot ben Adam la'makom, the commandments between a person and God. Mitzvot ben Adam la'chavero, and the commandments between a person and his friend. So that's what all the commandments are around. Now, if we look back at what Hillel is saying, Hillel says, that which is hateful unto you, don't do unto your friend. I'd like to suggest, as is alluded to in Rashi, the great commentary from the 11th century France, that friend has to be understood in a bit of a broader way than just your fellow person. First of all, God is called our friend, our beloved. The whole book of Song of Songs, book of the Bible, Song of Songs, describes God and the Jewish people 
as uh, people who are in love with each other, man and woman who are in love. God is called our beloved. I am to my beloved, my beloved is to me. As we say in the song that we sing on Shabbat, Yedid Nefesh Av Harachaman, beloved of the soul, father of mercy or merciful father. So one friend is God. Now, clearly also, my fellow human being is another form of friend. That's probably the most obvious explanation. That's another friend. And the third, and probably my closest companion, is my own soul. So, really, what Hillel is saying is the following. That which is hateful unto you, don't do unto your friend. If we ran our life, that every decision we made and every step we took, we always took into account our friend's meaning. I took into account the will of God. I take into account my own soul. I take into account other people. Imagine how that would be. Everything we do, we always take into account our friends. I wouldn't do anything to offend God, to hurt another person, or to hurt my own soul. If that is what Hillel means, then we understand that the entire Torah is a commentary on that. Everything in the Torah is a commentary on how to live your life and not offend, hurt, damage, live a life which is in harmony with your friends, with God, with other people, and with the soul. And that's what he meant by saying, that which is hateful unto you, don't do unto your friend. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. Thank you very much. This is David Eskenazi from the Aliyah Network. If you're thinking Aliyah, I invite you to join our dynamic and supportive WhatsApp group. Contact Gabriel for details. Send an email to gabrielradio at gmail.com. This week's program is not coming to you as normal from Jerusalem. I'm doing a bit of traveling. Among my activities, I was invited to speak to a group of 8th grade yeshiva boys on Long Island. They don't often get to speak with someone who came to Jewish living and learning from a Christian background as I do, so their questions were a mixed bag of curiosity and even some challenge. Maybe I'll do a segment in the future on some of their questions. They were quite impressive. I'll just mention one in passing as we close. What's the most meaningful difference you felt as being a Jew versus a non-Jew? And I'd have to say it's what we call the we factor. The sense of belonging to and with an ancient people, which has contributed so much to the good of the world. As I've traveled the globe, I run into fellow members of the tribe, MOTs, and with a little game of Jewish geography, we end up knowing someone in common, and voila, we're friends. As I mentioned to the Yeshiva boys last week, you see the we factor in our prayers as we speak of Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King. Shema Kuleinu, hear our prayer. So many of our spiritual transactions are with one another in mind. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, of blessed memory, spoke of how the Torah sets the foundation for the creation and the continuation of the Jewish people through space and time. The concept of community is one of the seven elements I note in a lecture that I call Seven Reasons I Became a Jew. You know, it might be worth sharing with you sometime. And if I get some feedback from you via email, maybe we'll do just that. And so, thanks today to Dr. Aiken and Rabbis Rietti and Becher for their insights. Thanks to Erin Michelle for her voiceovers and Audionautics for our intro-outro music. Till next time, keep making the difference only you can. This program showcases people, organizations, and opportunities for making a difference. Tune in next week for another freshly baked edition of the Gabrielle Sanders Show. You can reach Gabrielle at gabrielleradio at gmail.com. That's G-A-V-R-I-E-L radio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.